Good morning and welcome to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning in to Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. There are many ways that you can listen to Thy Strong Word, either over the air in the St. Louis area, online at kfuo.org or using the KFUO app, or using your favorite podcasting app. That's right. Just search for Thy Strong Word or any of KFUO's fine programs. As always, I love listening to As always, I love hearing from listeners, so if you have questions or comments about today's show or you just want to say hi, I invite you to reach out to me via email at pastorboo at gmail.com. Be sure to tell me how you're listening and where you're listening from when you write in. Thy Strong Word is supported by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Visit them online at lhfmissions.org to discover all the amazing things they're doing to spread the gospel of Jesus. Today is Wednesday, August 24th, and we begin the second half of Romans chapter 8 with verses 18 through 39. In the first half, we heard the wonderful gospel from St. Paul, who says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an amazing gospel. However, he also points to the reality of obedience that comes from faith. And then today, he's focusing on sufferings. But how do those sufferings compare with what awaits us in the future? Well, we'll learn more about that and other topics from my guest this morning, who is the Reverend Jacob Benson, currently serving at St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church in Lovell, Wyoming. Pastor Benson, Welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thanks for having me. Now, I, if I recall correctly, for just a little while, you and I served in the same district. That is almost the same circuit. We were right next to each other, and that is the New England district back in Connecticut. Um, now you are in Wyoming. Tell me a little bit about what brought you to Wyoming and who you're serving there and how God is working through you and the saints of St. John's. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm uh, actually from Wyoming originally, so I'm back close to home uh, here at the foot of the Bighorn Mountains. Um, where I am in Lovell, Wyoming, it's a curious part of, of the state. It was mostly settled by uh, Volga River German, so there was a sort of a mass exodus for a while of German Lutherans to Russia and then from Russia to the uh, Great Plains and the mountains over here, and also settled by Mormon settlers. So the uh, the religious demographic is uh, very curious here. When I was out in Connecticut, our town interfaith council almost felt like the setup to a joke, right? You know, two rabbis and a priest and a pastor walk into a room. Out here, it's a lot different. I believe our, our last town ministerium meeting, there were eight LDS bishops as well as one Apostolic United Brethren bishop, which is uh, a polygamist offshoot of the LDS. So totally different religious demographic than what I had out on the East Coast, but it's it's fascinating out here. I'm sure that presents a lot of challenges in your area, but hopefully also some opportunities to share the gospel. Now, this morning, I'd like to begin our study with prayer, and if it's okay with you, I would like for you to begin us in prayer. 
Absolutely. Uh, let's pray um, with Johann Gerhardt. He was a preacher in sort of probably the second generation of Lutheran. He's a fascinating theologian, but also a poet. So to, to the listeners, if you're not familiar with Gerhard, his prayers are a little lengthy, but please join me in praying. O living and eternal God, you have kindled in my heart the light of true and saving faith. Because of your kindness, I humbly beg that you mercifully preserve and increase my faith. I sometimes experience weakness in faith. I am tossed around by waves of doubt. I humbly cry out with the apostles for you to increase my faith. My heart places before you your word. A bruised reed you will not break, and a faintly burning wick you will not quench. I bear my treasure in an earthen vessel. I carry the little torch of faith hidden in a fragile container. I can do nothing but commend its keeping to you with earnest prayer on bended knees, daily and humbly praying for its increase. Make me a partaker of the heavenly light of faith in the darkness of this life and world. Your word is light and life. Be gracious to me and help me cling with true faith to your word and become a true child of light and life through you. May the comfort of your word prevail in me against all the trials of Satan, against the contradictions of the world, even against the thoughts of my own mind. One word of scripture is worth more than heaven and earth because it is more solid than heaven and earth. Work in me through your Holy Spirit that I may more firmly believe your word and place understanding and reason in submission to faith. Your promises are free and do not depend on my worthiness or merit. I can rest in them with the surest faith and trust in your goodness with my whole heart. Through faith, Christ dwells and lives in my heart. Preserve in me, therefore, the free gift of faith, so my heart may be and always remain the dwelling place of Christ. Faith is the seed of all good works and the basis of a holy life. Preserve and confirm in me this faith, kindest Father, so my spiritual harvest and dwelling will not suffer injury. Strengthen my faith so it overcomes the world and the prince of the world. Brighten the light of my faith so daily it spreads brighter beams even further. Preserve it amid the darkness of death so it may light before me the path of true life. Govern me by your Holy Spirit so faith will not be lost by consenting to the lusts of the flesh and by indulging in sins against conscience. Confirm in me the good work that you began. So, persevering in faith, I may obtain the inheritance of eternal life. Amen. Very beautifully put. Now, before we dig in, Pastor, would you like to kind of catch us up on what Paul has been talking about and where he's going? Yeah, so the Book of Romans is a fascinating sort of historical document. I have to admit, I'm not the biggest fan of epistles uh, when it comes to Bible study and preaching and, and even my own devotional reading. I don't know. I I like stories. I like narrative in the epistles. uh, Read more like sermons. So they certainly have their place. Uh, But the book of Romans, in part, because it has such a fascinating backstory and history. So Paul has never been to Rome, right? He's never visited these people. He's writing based on on what he's heard about them. And one thing he knows is that it is a, 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 not not necessarily divided, but certainly a, a diverse congregation, right? So you have Jews, you have um, ethnic Italians, Greeks, and then servants, slaves, and merchants from all over the empire coming together. So Paul is speaking some of the clearest words of gospel, and, and he's never apologizing for it. He's rather adding to it that there's also a life that, that lives through. 
And throughout the book of Romans, I like to imagine that Paul is sort of uh, bending his bow backwards. And I think it's when we get into this part of chapter eight that he actually looses his arrow as he uh, uh, leads into chapters nine, 10, and 11, where uh, it's just some of the most beautiful, comforting words of, of gospel, what we Lutherans call the doctrine of election, and also um, th- this sort of rapid fire quotation of scripture. I think we only get one scripture quote today from Paul, but but he's leading into um, sort of the, the the climax of his epistle. So chapter eight is the, I don't know, it, it's sort of the uh, the jumbotron flashing lights and song before the team runs out onto the field. So it's, it's a very exciting part of this epistle. I love that Paul is making this argument and he's speaking to such a variety of people, but he's, like you said, he's not afraid to double down on the gospel But in this section in particular, he's going to start focusing a little bit on sufferings, and we're going to read that text. We're beginning now with verse 18, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Holy Bible. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I'm going to end right there, Pastor. If you'd like to pick it up from verse 18 and Uh, Bring us through Paul's argument. Absolutely. So we have, uh, I mean, elsewhere in the book of Romans, there's that portion that's quoted in the funeral liturgy, right? If we've been baptized into a death like Christ, we will also experience a resurrection like his. And that's certainly beautiful words uh, to hear at a baptism. There's also this different level of the future glory is not just sort of uh, looking heavenward. It's also confessing that there is a, a life to be lived and a faith to be lived out in this life, right? It's not as though uh, creation is groaning in childbirth and then sort of the birth happens uh, at our biological death, right? Or when Christ returns in glory, that is the final glorification to be sure. But there is a, a glory and there is a peace and a joy that that is lived out in this life. And it's not a a weakness by any means, but sort of the, I guess it's the opposite, right? The strength of our Lutheran heritage is this bold confession that man is justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. Uh, by Lutheran, right? I just mean biblical. It's so so clear from scripture. And being justified by faith, there, there is this, this life that's lived. So the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, of course, there's two different levels here. The first being Life uh, has thorns and thistles and sin and pain and death and all this stuff. And of course, that's going to go away in heaven. Also, at this current time, there is sufferings that can be or or may, uh, under the grace of God, be remedied in this life. And the creation, I love that line, that the creation waits with 
eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm uh, repeating what's been said in earlier episodes or if I'm stealing somebody's thunder, but I, I believe that it's earlier in Romans, right? When Paul says that uh, through one man, all mankind fell, which uh, leads to the beautiful hymn, All Mankind Fell in Adam's Fall, which if memory serves, I think is the only hymn that's actually cited in our Lutheran confessions in the book of Concord. That being said, it's a, a great reminder that it's not only humans, but all of creation is dragged down with it. Um, you know, again, being out here in Wyoming, there's a lot of farmers and ranchers. Um, there, there's tons of thorns in, in the ground. And also we live in a desert, right? Oh, so wow. we, it, we have to irrigate everything. I mean, we have to really work to get things to grow. Uh, I mean, just uh, not too long ago, we had to put our, our family dog down, right? Th- this, oh. this pain of, of death and, and everything that that our father Adam Adam dragged all of creation down with him. It's not just something that affects humans and everybody else is just kind of passive observers, right? So the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Right. So again, all of creation is going to be set free from bondage into sin. I remember as, as a kid, I used to, as a young child, I used to sort of keep myself up at night with stomach aches, really just kind of wondering, you know, all this stuff I hear in church, is it real? And if it is real, um, I was convinced that heaven was going to be the most boring thing ever because <laughs> we're just going to be these, you know, disembodied souls floating around on clouds, you know, doing nothing it, in, in my mind. It always sort of looked like outer space, right? Where there was, there was a light source, but it was coming from somewhere else. Uh, but we read in scripture that actually the, the final glorification of all things includes all of creation, right? The fact that there's um, you know, wine and water in the new creation means that there's farmers, right? And there's cultivation and there's, uh, you know, metal workers right. and, and artists and presumably, hopefully animals, right? You know, all of these things. So all of creation is is working towards that final thing. And just as, you know, in our divine service, we sort of catch a glimpse into heaven. So too, in this life, we catch a glimpse, not of the eternal praise as we do in, in our church services, but we do catch a glimpse here and there of what that final rest will look like, right? And of course, everybody, or I hope everybody listening to this has been happy at some point or joyful at some point or truly restful at some point. And if not, uh, certainly scripture is where we learn how to rest. You know, I think it's really great because when we talk about heaven, as you so you know eloquently pointed out, we often focus on this idea that we're going to be floating in the clouds, playing harps, this very um, – an idea that comes from popular media, uh, but also certainly from some literature and other things. But what we ignore, I think, in our culture especially is this idea of the new heavens and the new earth, as you're pointing out, that the entire creation is going to be redeemed. So when you talked about being a child and you, you said you're sitting in bed and you're thinking about kind of how boring heaven would be. It brings to my mind, uh, during my first call, I was teaching confirmation and I was trying to explain this idea of the new heavens and the new earth, that there would be animals. And, you know, are those going to be our pets? Is it going to be your beloved dog who passed? Well, the Bible doesn't talk about it like that, but we do know that there, at the very least, are going to be animals in the new creation. 
So one of the boys raised his hand, and this is rural Minnesota, and he says, well, um, will there be deer hunting in heaven? <laughs> and I said, you know, the esteemed theologian fresh out of seminary that I was, I said, well, there isn't death in heaven. There's no death, so I can't imagine there will be deer hunting. And so just this puzzled look comes across his face, and you know, I'm worried that he's going to say the same thing you did. You know, well, if there's no deer hunting in heaven, then I don't want to go. <laughs> and what he comes up with uh, shows the uh, the extents that the human mind will go through to reconcile scripture, or at least what his pastor said, is, well, you know what I figure is that after we shoot the deer, they'll get right back up so that we can shoot them again. <laughs> and so he sat down satisfied that in heaven, it's going to be a continual deer hunt. Now, while I can't commend that particular interpretation to our listeners, <laughs> it's good for us to get our try to get our minds around what really we can't fully understand. And that is that in ways that we don't fully know, God is going to redeem the whole creation. It's going to be concrete, not just some eternal floating in the clouds, you know, humans become angels with wings kind of stuff, which is just not consistent with what the scripture says. Right. And and that's, you know, in some ways, you know, good on the kid for at least thinking about it, right? And this is something that that I encourage in in hears of of my sermons. And and I think one of the reasons that I do prefer um, you know, the the narrative story parts of scripture is to use that um I think some people have called it a sacramental imagination, but just sort of using the human mind, right? To picture what these things look like. You know, picture what it actually looked like is whatever, you know, Jesus was multiplying loaves or picture what heaven is going to look like. And then it becomes uh, a little bit more real. Right? I mean, that's why why we're such so big on, on the incarnation, right? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And if uh, there's an image of the invisible God, then we should be able to use our minds to create uh, images for thinking about these things. Now, yeah, probably probably there's not going to be any eternal deer. I mean, you got to push that, right? Is there just one deer or is it one deer per hunter? I mean, how far do you go with that? Exactly. But you know what? He, but what was fascinating about this uh, young man is that he wasn't rejecting the scriptures. He was just trying to conceive of how to reconcile this, how he understood heaven to be with how he was, I guess, hoping heaven would mm-hmm. be. And there's really nothing wrong with that, you know, as long as we don't take that to mean gospel or a new revelation. Right. It's certainly good for people to take seriously what God's word says. And what I think is interesting about the text we're looking at now is if we just go back one verse before 18 into 17, well, we can say 16 too, it says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So when you talked about the types of sufferings in this present time, as Paul points out, and the the ways that suffering can be reconciled both in eternity in the new heavens, the new earth, but also even relieved in this life, there seems to be some connection between suffering and glorification if we're connected to the sufferings of Christ. And, and Paul seems to be indicating that that's what it means to be a child of God. That's in contrary to this, you know, modern idea that, you know, if you are favored by God, then you'll have no suffering. You'll be blessed. You'll be driving around in a Rolls Royce. But really, 
Paul points out, and of course he's being inspired by God himself, the Holy Spirit, he points out that being a child of God actually brings about suffering. How does that look, either in Paul or also in our daily lives? Right. I mean, I, you know, I, I was given my assignment, so I didn't want to peek back too much. But, but one fascinating thing there in the uh, the theological dictionary of the New Testament, it's like a twelve volume um, overview of all of the Greek of the New Testament. The the words uh, where we get stuff like heir or inheritance or things like that, it's it, it's always a reference, or at least in the ancient world, it was always a real property, right? So you couldn't inherit, you know. Um, water rights or something like that. It was always something real and tangible. So when when Paul is using that language, you know, in the context of the Roman Empire, he's telling us that the inheritance is not this, it's not merely spirit. I don't say that to like downplay the spiritual, right? But that the inheritance is is a participation in in the incarnation, but also in the resurrection and the ascension, right? In the final glorification of Christ. And so the suffering um, you know, it, it, you, you point that out, the um, the sort of error that we get this idea that if you just pray really, really hard, you'll get a Rolls Royce or, you know, you, you'll bag right. the big deer or wh- whatever, uh, whatever it Name may it be. and claim it. Name it and claim it, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In so many ways, this obsession with materialism in this life, I think at the heart of every, I don't even want to say Christian, right? So lowercase s, spiritual person, right? The person who looks up at the night sky and says there's something out there. There is an idea somewhere built in that what lies on the other side of death has to be different than what we're experiencing now. And so if what I'm experiencing now is totally materialistic and it's all about stuff, then what has to be on the other side is, you know, purely spiritual or or ethereal. And so the suffering... We just think that the suffering is tied to, uh, I guess maybe there's two opinions, right? It's either because everybody else in the world is just a bunch of jerks and they make my life hard, or maybe more piously would say, well, I'm an inheritor of Adam's sin. And so there's always going to be suffering, not realizing that there is a, um, a, a joy, I don't know how to say it, a glorification, I guess, lowercase g, <laughs> glorification of things in this earth, even the material, right? So that somebody, a Christian can get the Rolls Royce and enjoy it in a true way. And, and the suffering is not just, um, you know, the bad stuff that happens to you. It's also just realizing I'm in a fallen world and I'm going to die someday because my flesh uh, is, or I've inherited Adam's flesh, right? So I'm going to, to wither up and die someday. But that suffering, just as Christ has a body and died in it. So to our suffering, which will lead to death, our experience of reality will lead to death. It will give birth to a greater reality, just as Christ's death did. Mm. No, that's very aptly put. Before we move on to the next few verses, is there anything else you'd like to cover before we go from 26 to 30? Just uh, to point out to uh, quickly, hopefully quickly, pastors always say that, right? Quickly, oh, yes, and then of course. We just it's an occupational forever. hazard. It is. Uh, not only the creation, but we, this is verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly. That Paul is reminding uh, us and, and the Romans that even though all creation has been brought down, right? Humans really are the crown jewel of creation. Mm-hmm. We are still the favorites. And because of that, our suffering looks very different than um, other animals suffering. 
but so too our glorification will be so much greater than the glorification. You know whether whether pets are raised in the I don't know if they are. There, yeah, there's no reason to believe that. But sure, there's probably going to be animals in heaven. But guess what? Humans are still going to be greater than all of the animals in the new heavens. Oh, and I the think North. that's very key because you know in our world today, where we talk about you know stewardship of creation, taking care of the earth environmental concerns and certainly being good stewards of things like you know animals taking care of animals and not abusing them and those sorts of things there's this careful balance i think that we have to maintain between recognizing that humans are the crown jewel of god's creation but we're also put in charge to take care of god's creation so when we think about environmentalism or we think about you know uh, taking care of animals christians should really be at the forefront of what that looks like to be done in an appropriate way. At the same time, this creation around us will be renewed. It will be glorified in ways that are uh, different, but also in ways that will serve the eternal home of man. And so I, I think it's important these Christian ideas get put out into the ether because a lot of them are being misconstrued by modern ideas of what it means to be part of creation. Right, right. I think this is a good time to take a short break. So folks, stay tuned because after we return from these brief messages, my guest, Pastor Jacob Benson, and I will continue our study of Romans. We'll be right back. This is the voice of a mother in the faraway country of Georgia, reading to her six-month-old son about Jesus from a Bible storybook written in the Georgian language. The child's Bible was given to her by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through your support of LHF to make events like these happen every day. Help another family learn of the Savior. Learn how at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back, friends, to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and I'm chatting with the Reverend Jacob Benson about Romans chapter 8, and we've just found ourselves at verse 26, so I'm going to read the next few verses, and we're going to continue our discussion. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what it and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We're ending there with verse 30. Pastor, uh, lots of good stuff here. Lots of very familiar passages. And it even brings up the P word, predestined, which is so misunderstood. (laughs) 
but we're, it's not going to be misunderstood in just a few minutes because you're going to help us understand it. Beginning with verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Brother, take it from there. Yeah, so as you said, it's, it's a familiar section for a lot of people. And uh, as we sometimes say, familiarity breeds contempt. Um, I like to tell uh, the folks here at St. John's, you know, there's no such thing as a Bible verse. And what I mean by that is everything, you know, uh, sits within its context. And sometimes these uh, verses ripped out don't actually mean anything in and of themselves. So there's a, a few, uh, I, I don't want to give anybody bad ideas of how this can work, but, or, or what these uh, verses might mean. But as you read through the more familiar parts of scripture, you know, that's sometimes where we need to work even harder. So the spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And there's so many different um, ways to think about this. I I often think of the spirit actually hearing the prayers of the church, you know, maybe on a Sunday morning and sometimes turning to the father or maybe to the son who who sits on the throne and just groans miserably. (laughs) What is going on here? What are, what are they praying for? You know, why, why is some guy in Lovell, Wyoming praying, you know, over his dead dog, right? Is it really, is that the big concern? I didn't pray over my dead dog, by the way, but you know, like, you know, what's going on here? And also there's a positive thing here. There's so many times, you know, it may be at the death of a pet or uh, more importantly, and, and, infinitely more sad, right? The death of a loved one or for pastors when a beloved parishioner dies or, um, you know, especially for us in in rural communities, you know, a death in the community or a sick child or something like that. It's, it's sort of a, it's a much bigger deal in a small town. And sometimes we don't have those words and we pray um, sort of the thoughts of our hearts, maybe even silently. And and it's comforting to know that the spirit also prays in that same or uh, intercedes for us in that same way, not necessarily with, with words and, and, you know, beautiful poetry to God, the father, God, the son, but sometimes just that, that raw emotion, right. That God knows because his son is, is fully human and knows these emotions, knows this pain. So again, it's a great reminder that there is a special place in God's creation for humans, right? Uh, dogs don't pray. Deer don't pray. And the spirit intercedes for humans, for the saints, right? That is for believers, according to the will of God. I think that's a great point in terms of how prayer is such a, a personal thing, but at the same time, our prayers are accepted before the Father because they go through Jesus. But there are times, not all of us can pray like Gerhardt, the prayer that you read at the beginning right, of the right. show. So occasionally, whether it be emotions or whether it just be the lack of our ability to articulate our feelings, yeah, our prayers can sometimes be just desperate cries, desperate moans, desperate sighs that the Holy Spirit brings before the Father, the Spirit himself, of course, being God. And so our prayers reach God even when we're not as eloquent. Another pastoral hazard is you're at various functions and people look at you and they just say, would you pray for us suddenly? And of course, it's our eager uh, obligation to pray. But at the same time, you know, you don't always have to be super eloquent because what matters is that prayer that comes from the heart and God certainly hears the heart. Yeah, absolutely. That, that is, it's a, a test of humility, I think, often when pastors are asked to pray in public. 
On verse 28, it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, this sounds like one of those very familiar verses that is also liable to be misused or misunderstood. What does Paul mean here and and how is it correctly applied to our lives? Yeah, so we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And I think the biggest problem is, you know, in our highly subjective American culture, good is whatever I want it to be, right? So, uh, you know, to use your example, if, if good is a Rolls Royce, then I know, right, it's right here in the Bible, I know that for those who love God, and of course I love God because I'm a good person, all things work right. together for me getting a new car. But if we let scripture speak for itself, we have to go and see what good actually means. You know, the first time we, we come across the notion of good is at the dawn of creation, right? When God keeps saying it is good, it is good, it is good. And there's no Rolls Royce, there's no death, there's no hyper-materialism, there's nothing like that. Uh, Later on in scripture, Christ will call himself the good shepherd. Uh, And so often we think of good as the, you know, it's, it's very middle of the road, right? If you're buying a used book, if it's in good condition, that's not the best it can be. But here, for those who love God, all things work together for good, right? For the highest good, for the good things in the world that God, that Holy Scripture has called good and noble. You know what I think also tempers this verse is the fact that the context around it, I love how you said earlier, you know, there really is no such thing as a Bible verse. And that's absolutely true. You know, we didn't have verses in the Bible till like the mid 1500s or something like that. You might know the exact date. But the point is, whenever we it's it's the verses, chapters, et cetera, are amazing for locating things in the Bible, but they have been a big detriment for people who want to take things out of context. And the context of him saying that, you know, all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called, it's it's surrounded by Paul talking about how those who are the children of God will suffer along with Christ. Yeah. So it it definitely is putting a not an asterisk but but a a different spin on the idea that good is about just as you so strikingly said, good is about being connected with Christ who is good. So so that will bring about suffering interestingly enough. Um but the course the whole point of this section of Paul's letter is that waiting for us in the new heavens and the new earth is a glory that is beyond the sufferings that we face. Right. And especially in the context of, you know, who he, the initial context of who he's preaching to in Rome or who he's writing to in Rome for those who are called according to his purpose, right? Those who are called according both to eternal salvation and for, for love of neighbor in this life to a congregation where you have, you know, basically one half that's saying, well, we know we're saved because we're of the right ethnicity. But we're not so sure about everybody else on the other side, right? The, those uh, uncircumcised pagans or, or those uncircumcised Gentiles over there, we don't really know. Uh, we don't really know about their salvation, and so Paul, you know, has to speak about faith, of course, and justification in the work of Christ. And this is why it's so beautiful when he says, "For those whom he foreknew," right? Which is sort of the the least exciting thing because God is all knowing, so God knows all things. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, right? He he gave them a destiny to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
So God is actually setting aside those who are going to be conformed to the image of his son, the image that that was um, lost or maybe tainted or shattered or uh, dirtied, however you want to think about that in Adam's fall, that we would work towards the image of his, that we would be conformed to the image of his son in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers, right? And again, the, that not just physical birth of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ, which which shadows are uh, coming out of the baptismal font, that Christ is now the firstborn among many. And those that the Father predestined, he also called. We'll find out later in Romans, he only calls by the word of preaching. Those whom he predestined, he also called by the gospel. And those whom he called by the gospel, he also justified, that is declared righteous for the sake of Christ. And those whom he declared righteous, he also glorified. And it's so, uh, again, uh, it's not those whom he justified, he also will glorify, but he glorified that there is a glorification that occurs in this life. It's never perfected, right? It's never completed. It's always um, looking towards that final glorification, but there is a glory that happens in this reality. So predestined to be conformed, called, justified, you so rightly pointed out that later Paul lets us know that God does his electing work through the gospel, that we're saved from hearing the gospel. Yeah, that's why I love that, um, the prayer from Gerhard. That's from, uh, by the way, it's uh, Meditations on Divine Mercy. It's a short little book. There's there's great prayers in there. But if, if you caught, or I guess you can rewind and, and go back and listen, uh, he speaks about um, faith and an increase of faith, and then also letting human reasons submit itself to faith. And so, so often, you know, the, the human mind will say something like, well, if God predestines to glory, uh, then God, right, we turn it into a math equation, then God must also uh, predestine to damnation, right? Not, not, not to pick on your former uh, confirmand, right? But if everything good is in heaven, and I think hunting deer is good, therefore, right, exactly, <laughs> there's hunting deer in heaven, right? So this is a quote from uh, the Book of Concord. I'm reading from the Colbin uh, Wanger translation. So in the first, uh, maybe second generation of Lutheranism, we, we put together uh, the formula of Concord, the solid declaration. And Article 11 actually grew out of a debate among Protestant scholars or non-Roman scholars on uh, election. There's this great line where the, the writers say, for this reason, if a person wishes to think or speak about the election and predestination of God's children to eternal life correctly and profitably, one should, as a matter of course, refrain from speculation over the naked, secret, hidden, inscrutable foreknowledge of God. Now, in, in some ways, that, that may feel like a, a cop-out answer, right? Well, God's ways are not our ways, you know, shut the book, end of sermon, go home. But what the, the formulators are, are working towards there is that when Paul speaks about predestination in the book of Romans, he always ties it to calling. And so if somebody has not been called by the gospel, we actually don't need to speculate about their predestination. There's no need to say, well, did God, you know, uh, predestine, you know, whatever people in this obscure South Pacific island who, who never encountered Jesus? Did he predestine them to damnation? Well, we actually don't need to look into that naked, inscrutable foreknowledge of God because 
we only know about predestination as it's tied to calling. And that calling only comes through hearing the preached, the, the proclaimed word of God. You know, when we talk about God's ways are not our ways and those sorts of things, um, yeah, it can sound like a cop-out, but the reality is that, well, it's true. The God that you can get in your mind, the God whose ideas about the world completely uh, match your own ideas about the world or are always consistent with the way that you figure, you know, in terms of what is good and what is not good, then absolutely, that God is not the true God. We have to submit our human reason to what the scriptures say, even when we don't always fully understand uh, at first glance exactly what is being communicated. That's why it's important that we understand that scripture interprets scripture. Anything else before we move on to the very last few verses of our text this morning? I, I do want to read one more portion from the Formula of Concord where he actually, uh, or, or they, I suppose, they actually get into um, the, 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 the portion of Romans 8 that we're about to get into, but this is a great um, sort of foreshadowing of that. So again, this is on the, the doctrine of election. Uh, this is paragraphs uh, 48 through 50. So this doctrine, the doctrine of election, also gives us wonderful comfort in crosses and trials that in his counsel before time began, God determined and decreed that he would stand by us in every trouble, grant us patience, give us comfort, create hope, and provide a way out of all things so that we may be saved. Likewise, Paul treats this matter in such a comforting way in Romans 8 pointing out that in his intention before time began, God preordained what sort of crosses and sufferings he would use to conform each one of his elect to the image of his son, and that the cross of each should and must work together for the good of that person because they are called according to his purpose. On this basis, Paul concluded with certainty and without doubt that neither hardship nor distress Neither death nor life will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This article also offers a wonderful testimony that the church of God will exist and persist against all the gates of hell. And it also teaches what the true church of God is, so that we are not troubled by the impressive appearance of the false church. Uh, and and there, uh, Romans 9 is cited, I, I won't steal that thunder. But this is such a, a comforting thing of this isn't, God sort of throwing uh, a, a dart with your name on it at a board and, and seeing if you land on predestined for heaven or predestined for hell. This is God sending preachers into the world to call people to conform hearers to the image of the Son of God. Uh, and also uh, a plug, folks, for reading the Book of Concord. It's not just dry theology. It's good stuff. It reads like a sermon sometimes. Everybody should read it. Verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, there we go. So uh, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, everybody is against us. So what is Paul saying here? You know, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Everybody does, at least unbelievers. Um, take us through Paul's thoughts here. You know, how do we reconcile these these words, these beautiful messages of gospel and the power of God to provide for those who are his children with the reality that, well, suffering in this world sometimes includes, well, accusations, charges, um, all kinds of things that are, are certainly inconsistent with what we might want from life. Yeah, there, there's accusations both from from within and, and without Christianity of haughtiness, right? Well, you you know, you think that you're just so great uh, because you're among the elect, and you know, we of course right, we confess our sins, but sometimes I think we just need to own it and say, yeah, I am among God's elect. So who can be against me? Because God is for me. You right. know, there's a uh, sort of existential angst that's built in. Well, probably a lot of your um, pre-Lutheran living, right, Pastor? Uh, this this notion of once saved, always saved. And can you ever really be sure that you're saved? And as as Lutherans, as, as Bible-believing Christians, we just say, I'm saved because I have been called by the gospel. I have uh, received new birth in the waters of holy baptism. I have heard absolution from the pastor again and again and again. And I can actually look to a verse in the Bible that tells me that when the pastor forgives me, Jesus is forgiving me. I've received the body and blood of Christ uh, uh, innumerable times, right? For the forgiveness of my sins. And though I sin daily, I, I pray for the increase of faith. I repent. And yeah, I am among God's elect. What can what can uh, be against me? Even my own sin, right? And, and to be sure, uh, as our Lord speaks in the parable, cares and anxieties of the world can choke out that seed or or the devil himself can rip it out of our hearts. But for those who persevere, right, it's not because we're really, really strong and really good or because our church is better than your church or whatever it may be. It's because God is for us and he and so nobody can be against us. God loves you in this way that he didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up on a cross for all of us. So how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You kind of wonder if Paul has in the back of his mind the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where Jesus says, hey guys, God loves birds and flowers and grass. So obviously he loves you so much more. And after pointing out that we have been conformed to the image of his son, Paul is saying God loves his son. Yes, he gives him up to death, but then he raises him to the greatest glory ever known. And if you are in his image, are you not going to go through those same sufferings and also go through this same glorification? Yes, in this life. And yes, ultimately, uh, glorification in heaven. You talked about haughtiness. And, you know, yes, the world looks at us. And if you were to boast in the Lord, as St. Paul himself does, then they would look at that and they would see that as haughtiness. But there certainly is a difference between boasting in yourself or your own perceived perfection or saying that you're saved because of your perfect doctrine as opposed to being saved because of the gracious mercy of God through Christ. But yeah, we can boast. We can defend ourselves 
with the idea that we belong to God because that's what God tells us. That's what God secures for us through Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. There's a difference between boasting in Christ and being a hypocrite. People yeah. out in the world certainly don't always make that distinction. Yeah, and and also, you know, being able to say sometimes we don't know, right? The the opposite of predestined to to a glory is not predestined to damnation. The opposite is uh, I don't know. Uh, we have an after school program during the school year, and and the kids here just brill- they have wonderful uh, dads and moms that that teach them the faith at home and. And, and I'm just so blessed with, with very pious Christians here. But I'll ask the kids sometimes, you know, how do you know you're saved? And they'll say, because I believe and I'm baptized. And I'll say, okay, are your unbaptized friends saved? Mm. And they'll say, I don't know. <laughs> and that that is the correct answer. And that's not haughtiness. That's not boast. It's As you said, right, it's boasting in the Lord. It's boasting in what God has done for us through baptism, through the gift of faith. Nothing because of our own will or strength or anything like that. Oh, that that's such a, a beautiful example because we are assured of our place before God because of Christ, but we can't go around condemning others because you know, we don't know. And it's not that there are multiple ways to heaven and we don't know if their way is going to be accepted. But as we often say, we cannot read the heart of other people. So it seems like our job is to go out and proclaim that law and gospel, proclaim the good news to folks so that they can have that same blessed assurance as I grew up saying. Yes. Yeah. Uh, to, to your point, I, I always feel like I have to say this too. I mean, it's you're absolutely right, right? We don't know people's heart. And um, some people will often go to their pastor and say, well, you can't say that, that anybody's condemned, right? Because you don't know people's heart. And and that's absolutely true. But I have had conversations where I'll say to someone, um, do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? And they'll say, no, I don't believe in any of that. And I say, well, I don't have to know their heart, right? Well, <laughs> I, and there is I, the difference. There's, yeah, right, right. Well, there's not knowing someone's heart, and then there's also just believing their confession. Exactly, yes. Uh, and, and the same goes for pastors and fellow Christians for the opposite. When Christians come and confess their sins to you, it's not our job to investigate their heart to see if they're really sincere right. or to follow them around for the week to make sure that they don't fall back into that sin. Christ tells us that we are to forgive them, forgive them 70 times seven. So, yeah, we have this beautiful message that, yes, we are secure in the love of Christ. Uh, but then he quotes, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's not exactly a verse that makes it to the front of evangelism tracks. Uh, so, you know, we talk about becoming a Christian. Is that how we're trying to so-called sell the idea of being a Christian for your sake? We're being killed all the day long. Come and join us. We're sheep to be slaughtered. While that's true and it's scripture, um, yeah, we have this sort of PR problem because the people out in the world think that we think that we're better than others when in reality, our confession is just the opposite. We are poor, miserable sinners who need what God offers us here. But at the same time, I grew up in a tradition that believed that, you know, the point of uh, evangelism was to get people to sign on the dotted line. You had to get them to say the sinner's prayer. You had to get them to make a commitment. Um, you know, always be closing, right? It's the difference between the Cadillac or the or the steak knives. You had to be out there racking up those numbers. Um, that's not how we evangelize. You know, we don't want to be ticking off, uh, you know, little moments uh, and and measuring our 
our efforts by how many people we share the gospel with, but instead we we build relationships with people whereby we can then share with them law and gospel, and the Holy Spirit does the work. By the time we're able to commit ourselves to Christ or say a sinner's prayer, the person who is able to do that already believes and is already saved because of the faith that God gave them. So how do we evangelize others with this idea that God elects his people through the word of God? Yeah, one of the the difficult questions for pastors or any Christian to answer is how can you believe that? And I think we sometimes just sound silly when we say, well, it's in the Bible, right? I, I believe it because it's there. And, and this is the difference uh, between a lot of religions, you know, and, and even a lot of um, different, uh, can I say branches isn't a good word, but sort of different versions or instantiations of Protestantism is that they, they grew out of a, a world where you sort of took for granted that there was a God. And for the most part, that God was a trinity, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so everything is is massaged into this idea of there is a God, the Bible is more or less true. And so we just have to figure out a way to make that um, appealing and applicable to people. Now, the world now, it's not that at all. And Lutherans have just been sort of steadily chugging along for the past 2,000 years or so because we say the world, whether or not they believe in God, uh, this is true. This is real. And, and we're not presenting, um, you know, we, we actually don't have a PR problem because we're not trying to market anything. Right. We're saying this is reality, right? I, I'm not trying to convince you that the sky is blue or something like that. I'm just telling you the sky is blue and, and praying earnestly that, that, that my God will move your fallen heart to, to believe that the sky is blue or whatever it may be. Uh, obviously, I was tongue in cheek about the PR problem because, well, because we do have Christians who feel like it's our job to sell something. But you're so right in what you say that, yeah, we're not here to sell you on Christ. We want you to believe just as God wants all people to come to faith. Our job is to give you the gospel, to love our neighbors, to live our lives in service to our Lord by serving those around us. And we sort of leave the rest of the Holy Spirit. Right. And so we can quote the Psalms, uh, you know, this is Psalm 44, right? For your sake, we were being killed all the day long. And we can quote it and say, yeah, this is this is our church's hymnal. <laughs> you know, this is what we believe. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, but that's totally okay because our God was also regarded. He, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And so what a joy to be able to participate in that. Well, he tempers that with our last verse, and we just have a couple of minutes left in the program. So the last verse talks about, uh, well, I'll just read it. You know, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's God's love for us in Christ Jesus, not our love for God, because unfortunately we could be easily separated from that. In these last just a couple of minutes, you know, what should the hearers really take home from chapter eight? Yes. I mean, you think about the initial hearers of this in Rome, right? It's a violent culture. Children are being killed. So basically any any child with a disability is just getting tossed out onto the street, right? There's tons of death. There's, um, uh, you have the, the Colosseum, right? You have all of this fighting going on. And you also, in, uh, I'm going to get the timing wrong, maybe like 20 or 25 years after this is written, People are being literally being killed, right? Simply for being a Christian. 
And so Paul is, right. is planting them deep in, in a time of peace so that they're prepared for a time of tribulation, that neither death, right? That's the first thing. Death is not going to separate you from Jesus, nor life, right? That is all of the sufferings and all of the material and, and all the lusts of the flesh and everything. That's not going to separate you from Jesus, nor angels, right? Not not true angels, not fallen angels, and and I wonder here if he's talking about worship of angels, but that maybe that's a different conversation. But neither angels nor that is anything spiritual can separate you from the love God has for you in Jesus, nor uh, rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. And I think that's incredibly relevant for us today, right? There's a lot of anxiety about um, inflation and financial ruin and financial decay and. Uh, political freedoms and all of this stuff, right? There's a lot of anxiety, but guess what? None of that, right? Even poverty, even, you know, whatever, losing your right to 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 vote or losing all of this stuff or or the government taking away your guns or, or the IRS hiring, whatever it is, right? Whatever's going on and whatever's going to happen, nothing is able to separate you from the God who loves you and his son, Jesus Christ, not even height, nor depth, nor powers, nor anything else in all of creation. Nothing is going to separate that from you. And so there's no anxiety about, um, am I predestined or or certainly am I good enough, right? Hopefully at this point in Romans, we know that that none of us are good enough, but that there should be no anxiety about this because it is God loving his creation, specifically loving the crown jewel of his creation, mankind, in sending his son to be our fellow man so that we can participate in his cross, his death, his resurrection, and become co-heirs with him, adopted as God's own sons. Beautifully put. Thank you so much to my guest this morning, the Reverend Jacob Benson. I really hope that you'll join us again in the future. I'm sure the listeners are eager to hear more from you. Cool. I hope you have me back. This was a blast. Excellent. Dear Saints Loved by God, thank you for tuning in to Thy Strong Word this morning. The books mentioned by our guest during this morning's show were Meditations on Divine Mercy by Johann Gerhardt, translated by Matthew Harrison. You can also find a copy of our Confessions in Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord. Both of these can be found through Concordia Publishing House at cph.org. Well, until next time, God's peace and blessings to you until God gathers us together again.